Last year in November, this story was everywhere, and it's still getting a lot of attention. The killing of four University of Idaho students. Now, the suspect in the case, Brian Koberger, is taking kind of an unusual stance and choosing to remain silent. So on his behalf, a judge has entered a not guilty plea. We're going to talk a little bit about what kind of precedent that sets or if that precedent already exists and how that might play out with an upcoming trial in this case. Our guest is no stranger to the show or to you, Ched Nation, criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator Ari Goldkind is joining us once again. Ari, always a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? Great to talk to you again. I, uh, I'm excited to dive into this one because I always find it interesting which stories get a ton of attention. Why do you think th- this story in specific, Ari, was so sensational and piqued our interest so much? I think there are a number of reasons. That's, first of all, a great question because there's a number of murders that I think are as interesting but seem to go by the wayside. I'll start with what I think are the reasons the public is fascinated with this. One, you have an accused killer that really looks like he's out of central casting. <laughs> if you watch Mindhunter on Netflix or you watch Ted Bundy biographies, this guy looks like he's literally chiseled from stone to be that neighbor from a good family who nobody ever heard a peep about, but he's got weird eyes, relatively attractive, and he's charged with butchering. And I really do mean that, by the way, butchering four innocent students that he has absolutely no connection to. In this case, there's no motive, there's no history, and when you see him in the orange jumpsuit, he looks so different from so many people charged with heinous crimes like this. For example, mentally ill, crazy people whose hair looks like they just put their finger in a light socket, or somebody who's talking endlessly the way we've seen in terrorism Uh, mental health trials in my city where you just know you're dealing with a basket case. Here, you have somebody, and we can get into his behavior in the weeks and months leading up to it and after, but you have somebody that really is the very definition of mysterious, Mm. and that's why I think so many people are drawn to this, not only for him, but for just how beautiful and innocent the people he killed were who were at the beginning of their at the beginning of their you know young lives at college and their lives were snuffed out in the middle of the night yeah, I completely agree with everything that you're describing. And if you're not familiar with uh, with what he looks like, uh, I mean, you can do a quick Google search. And uh, there's definitely a, a creepy factor and a lot of evidence that would suggest that he is the person that committed this murder. It's interesting, though his choice here or his lawyer's choice to remain silent and have the judge enter a a not guilty plea on his behalf. Is this something, is this a strategy? Why does something like this happen? Uh, Very common, uh, not unusual. I actually don't think he's utilizing a lawyer just yet properly in the normal way that you and I often talk about it. Uh, When an accused person stays silent at their arraignment, in the states or their indictment to use canadian terms it is a de facto or default judge and jury election that's what it's called in our country so you know if somebody's charged with murder in alberta and they are you know wheeled into the courtroom in edmonton or calgary 
and they don't say anything when they're asked how do they want to plead or what kind of trial do they want. It's deemed to be a judge and jury election. Mm. So there's nothing unusual about that, because remember, it's always the burden of the state to prove anything. Koberger has to prove nothing, and he can stay quiet as a mouse or, you know, mute. It doesn't change the state's burden. To me, what's going on with him and the silence in the light of the grand jury indictment and everything that we've seen, and he's aware of what's being talked about him, you know, to me, there has something gone on in his in his recent, and I mean recent past, just prior to the murders, where the elevator doesn't go to the top floor, the hamster has stopped spinning the wheel, because this was a person who, up until probably months before these murders, was leading probably, talk about central casting, an exemplary life, a good student, a teacher, uh, somebody who had started taking criminology so when your listeners chelsea go into all of their favorite crime shows on whatever your favorite channel is this is again the kind of guy that you're thinking to yourself could evil mask itself this way in this package and when you look at how he was acting before and importantly after the murders you start to see that you know looks as they often are can be very deceiving there's there's some thought or some rumor that um, a kind of a low-budget movie that his sister starred in really was um, was very similar to the way that these murders actually played out. Do you think that this is someone trying to get attention or, or fame, notoriety? Because the silence would perhaps suggest not. Well, let's start... Let's let's presume he did it for a moment, okay? okay? And there is some very strong evidence that points to it being him and only him. And the reason I say that is the police very early in this came out and said the rumor and innuendo about it being other boyfriends or this or that, that's got to stop. It's nonsense. When you look at the surveillance video, he drove a Hyundai Elantra. And this house, the, the murder house, he was casing it or stalking it Mm. for quite some time prior to these events. So I'm less persuaded by the rumor about the sister's movie, more to do with him having some kind of psychotic break or thinking he can pull off the perfect crime. We can get into why that is, but we're probably limited on time. But when you have a criminology background and you're studying murder and you're studying evil, And then you go out and do these sorts of things and you leave a pretty clean crime scene. The one linchpin to him, which your listeners should know, is that there was a piece of DNA left on a knife sheath, S-H-E-A-T-H, not a knife. They've never found the murder weapon. That's the one piece that connects him to the interior of this, which given, Chelsea, you know how brutal this crime scene is, literally blood all over the walls. I don't say that to make people, you know, nauseous. Those are the facts. He left a very clean crime scene. And when the police came upon him, a little detail that most people don't know, he was literally, and I mean this literally, in the throes of throwing garbage out while wearing surgical examination gloves. This is a really, really bizarre young man that to me there is some kind of psychotic break there because absent that, Chelsea, 
you have absolutely no motive or connection between him and his victims. And I mean, we're hypothesizing right now, but it could be, as you sort of alluded to, the the motivation was maybe to try to pull off the perfect crime. Obviously, this was premeditated. Obviously, there was a lot of thought that went into this. And I mean, would it have been uh, would it have been a, a, an untraceable crime had that sheath not been left behind? Well, yes. And let's make this more interesting for people. So you have a lot of listeners, Chelsea, that I guarantee you are spending 100 or 200 bucks on 23andMe or Ancestry.com. I mean, you know, I've had my dog's DNA tested. This is the (laughs) world we live in. Okay. And the reason I say that is this is not a guy known to police in a DNA data bank. But when they had the surveillance footage of this guy in his Elantra, they took DNA from that sheath. And they found a connection, a linkage between that very specific strand of DNA and a family member to him. So that's why I say that absent that sheath and perhaps the surveillance footage which caught the Hyundai Elantra going back and forth about 20 to 23 times. Other than that, this guy left what could arguably be the perfect crime, and I can assure you, Chelsea, as somebody who knows that evil walks amongst us, and it really does. A lot of people are naive to the idea that evil walks amongst us and gets away with a whole lot. He came very, very close to getting away with this if you take the assumption that he's guilty. There, this kind of now takes us back to to where this stands in terms of him going on a trial. He's declined his right to a speedy trial. What's the what's the strategy there? Is that for his defense team to try to come up with something? Here's the interesting part, given that we're discussing this in Canada. He will probably go to trial on this somewhere six to nine months from now. If this was in Edmonton or Calgary, it might be two to three years from now. So the definition of speedy trial is massively different between our country and his. So his silence will almost make it easier. And I expect that silence to at some point change. I really do. Hmm. I would expect him to find a much more high profile lawyer in the near future who may want to take this. It's a career making case. Uh, I don't know how if he will end up at trial with a public defender. I think he may. By the way, the public defender system is very different than our uh, defense system in Canada. That's a different discussion. But his silence in terms of being quiet when he's asked how he's pleading or what he wants to do, that will make it much easier for the judge overseeing his trial to fix early trial dates. And rest assured, that judge is not going to let this drag out because you also, I'm sure, are very live to the fact that you have four dead young people's families that are very interested in swift and speedy justice. Now, going back to the original, um, you know, new development on this case, that, that, that it was the judge that entered the not guilty plea on his behalf. Is that going to have any influence? I mean, there's still there's a lot more stacked against him than his silence right now. So is that going to really affect anything? Yeah, I don't want to give too boring an answer, but his silence <laughs> at this early point is quite meaningless. Okay. His silence, once a jury is impaneled and they perhaps see that he's not participating. And by the way, I do expect that to change. I think... This is, while this person may have had, as I said, a psychotic break, this person is still there if you accept that he did what he did. Because, again, remember, when the police caught him, he was acting in very, very suspicious, 
but thoughtful ways, not sort of walking as a zombie in the middle of the night. He was taking a lot of very significant steps. So I would be much more attuned to how does he behave once the jury is impaneled. And again, he may stay completely silent through his counsel. The state still has to discharge his burden and with no motive, because I think that's something that fascinates me. While, while prosecutors, or in our country, Crown attorneys do not have to prove a motive, they often don't have a motive, and no, a motive is not a requirement for a conviction for murder. The lack of a motive here, I think, is going to be something you and I are talking about in the months to come, because that's the piece of this puzzle that is so starkly bizarre if not unusual. Yeah, we're desperate for an answer and something that was absolutely brutal. Okay, Ari, thank you so much for making the time and for talking about this one. I have no doubt that we're going to talk about it again. So I really appreciate you today. Always good to talk to you. Ari Goldkind is criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator, of course, talking about Brian Koberger, the suspect in the killings of four University of Idaho students uh, that took place last November and still getting a ton of attention.